0: All right. Here's what we're gonna do, Kidmo. You're in here today, um, and um, I you just so happen I just so happened to have a shorter sermon plan for you today, and which you're super excited about. Um, I'm really glad that you chose to be with us today on Memorial Day. And here's what I'd like to do. I want to go through. Um, we're gonna go through nine plagues today. So it's a rip roaring feel good sermon. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to really bless you on this Memorial Day and talk about something that's just good and healthy and wholesome. So, we're going to talk about blood and death and rot and all kinds of good stuff like that. But we're going to do it in a little bit different way. Okay? Uh, we're not going to go through all of, of the plagues. We're not going to read through all of the scriptures. Uh, but I do want to give you a bigger picture of the story. And then I want us, we're going to, to summarily look at. Uh, the plagues, because there 's something really amazing happening in this in this portion of this the series of exodus, but it doesn 't make a whole lot of sense if we don 't understand the story leading up to it. So let me give you a, a couple of uh, points of quick background we 're going to jump in and read a little bit of the in, kind of the intro to the plagues uh, i want to i want to sh- tell you the things about the plagues that you have not heard before. Um, When I first heard the story of Exodus, I really believed that the plagues were just God kind of convincing Pharaoh to let people go. Like, okay, I'm going to double down. Okay, I'm going to double down. Okay, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to double down. Okay, we're on number nine. I'm going to double down. All right, finally, none of this is working, so number 10, we're pulling all the stops out. And I think that's the way most of us view these plagues. This is not what's happening here. It is not as if God couldn't from the very beginning ended this oppression and moved them out of egypt he could have started with the end but he didn't there's something way more important here and it speaks not just to them in their lives it speaks to us in our lives and for some of us we are living lives of oppression not because someone has their foot on us and has enslaved us and is making us make bricks with no straw but some of us are oppressed because of some of the choices that we make that god is trying to deliver them from He's also trying to deliver us from. So I want you to stay with me as we kind of go through this, but I want you to remember through this story, if there is one overarching theme of this story, it is this. You are loved. You are loved. I want you to turn to a neighbor, and I just want you to say, you are loved. I don't see anybody bringing dates today, so, you know, they're, they're missing out. They didn't bring a date to hear that today, but... You are loved. And listen, you are loved no matter what. That is what this story is about. This is a story of love, not just to them, not just to this group of people, but to us. Because this is setting a, a series of events in place. And if you, will, if you will follow through Exodus, you will find that there's a whole lot of parallels with Genesis. Genesis. And if you follow the story of Jesus, you're going to find a whole lot of parallels with the story of Exodus. This is a story that's being told over and over and over again. And God keeps raising the stakes, raising the stakes until we get to Jesus. And then he's like, game over. So that's why it's important for us to go back and we read this and we understand what this story is about. This is a story of love for the oppressed and for the world. If you memorized a verse of Scripture, um depending on how old you were when you first started memorizing Scripture, if you if you were really young, the first scripture you, you memorized was Jesus wept, right? Um it's the easiest one to read, easiest one to remember. But the second one that you likely learned, if you learned Jesus wept first, is John three sixteen. Well, let's just say that together. For God so loved the world, whosoever believes in him. Have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This three John three sixteen. What does the very first part say? For God so loved the Hebrews, right? Oh, it doesn't. For God so loved the Jews. For God so loved the really faithful church people. God so loved the people that just don't do the big sins. And for God so loved the world, which is me and it's you, it consequently are also the people that if it were our choice, we might say, God, you might not want to love them. God loved them too, whatever that group of people is. God so loved the world. This is the story of Exodus. It is a a love story of God for not just the people that are alive now, not just the people that were alive then, but for all people who have ever breathed or whoever will draw breath. This is a story of God's love for them because you are loved. Fundamentally, beyond anything else. Yeah, but aren't we supposed to be... You are just loved. And amazingly we can miss that message within this story. This is also a story of justice. And when we begin thinking about God, and if we do not see Him as judge, a God of justice, we will also miss what this story is about. But yet, justice in our minds is a very different idea based on how we think of justice in perhaps our justice system today than the way God works within this story. And one of the things that I've become convinced about is that God's justice is restorative, it is not punitive. God's justice is restorative, not punitive. God is working to restore something, not punish someone. And there's a lot of places in the Old Testament, and we read them and we're like, that doesn't sound like a very loving God. For example, what happens with the firstborn of all the Egyptians in the 10th plague, which we're not going to cover today, we're going we're gonna to cover that next week. That doesn't seem very loving. Or you move on into the Old Testament and you find, you know, or or even back in Genesis, um, Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't sound like a very loving God. And when you get into the entering into the promised land and now they're like wiping out whole nations, like that doesn't sound like a loving God. And those are the kinds of places in the scriptures that we read them and we're like, I don't know. And someone, you know, our unsaved friends come to us and say, hey, what is this about? And we say, "I, I don't really know. Maybe one day we'll find out. But what we're supposed to do is struggle with these texts to figure out what is this really about. And it makes a whole lot more sense when God is trying to restore something versus God is trying to punish someone. There's a difference between restorative and punitive. God is restoring something. He's also going to use a people at one of the lowest points of their lives. Change the world forever, and he did that then, and he does that today. If you're in one of those moments, there are three movements in the Book of Exodus. We're about to wrap up the first one. Um, the first one is the movement of liberation. That's the beginning of the story through the Passover, which is, we're going to start talking about next week. The second part we're going to start moving through these a lot more quickly through the different parts of Exodus. Um, the second one is from is the covenant. It's from Passover um, to the Ten Commandments. And then the third movement we find within Exodus is uh, really kind of our back to Eden moment, the tabernacle, um, which begins with the Ten Commandments and goes through the end of the book. And what we find is that God is actually moving us back to the garden. And actually gives them not just a visual, but a way to enter in some way back into the Garden of Eden, into a place of communion with him and to a place where life is good and we are good and just you know god is good but this is kind of where we've been we began with with chapter one pharaoh is afraid of this massive expansion of the hebrews he's afraid they're going to take over the nation and he does what people who operate out of fear do they try to fix it under their own power and so he tries to fix it in a number of ways the first time he tries to fix it he just makes them work all the time like, they're just expanding. They're having kids like crazy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to work them so hard that they're not going to want to have kids anymore. And yet they still are just expanding and growing and getting stronger and stronger. And then the second time, he comes back and he says, you know, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get with the midwives. And whenever their, their, their boys are born, I'm just going to tell them, hey, listen, just make sure those boys don't make it. And the midwives didn't listen. And instead, the midwives um, believed God. They did not believe Pharaoh. And so um he comes a third time back they're continuing to grow his fear is continuing to grow with it and so he says every um male baby is to be thrown into the river and so now we have just this this mass murder happening in egypt and yet this one couple have a child and they hide him and his name is moses and it is through Moses that deliverance is coming, just as deliverance came to humanity through Noah. And they put him in an ark. Remember, one of the only two places in the, in the Bible that use this word for ark. They put him in the ark. And they cover it with bitumen and pitch, just like the, the ark of Noah. And he floats down the Nile River, and the daughter of Pharaoh sees him and takes him into his household. And he grows up in Pharaoh's household. And for 40 years, he's in this place of of not ruling because he's not Egyptian, but yet he's with them and he's learning and he's growing and he's a part of this empire of Egypt. But he knows he's different and he begins to see his people being oppressed. And he decides, I'm going to step in and I'm going to use what I know about empire to save my people. And so as one slave is being abused, he steps in and he strikes a soldier and kills him. Which is the way empire works. We by force take what we want. We step in and we take out people if we have to do that. And yet God says, no, this is not how I work. This is not how I work. He flees, he goes and finds a wife, he's living a great life for 40 years, he's got kids, he's got a good job, he's got a great inheritance that's coming, he has set up, he's gotten out of Egypt, he's doing well, he's happy, and then God comes to him and says, listen I have a task for you, I want you to go back and I want you to lead my people out, and he says time after time after time, I can't do that, I'm not the right person for that, I'm no good at that, not me, I can't be that one. God says, yes, you're the one, yes, you're the one, yes, you're the one. And there's no other person that has been equipped to organize a nation out of a group of slaves and help them to to govern themselves and to know how to lead and how to follow. So then he goes, and this is kind of where we pick up in the story, God quickens him and Moses isn't fully committed to God yet at this point. And in the process of saying, listen, I don't know if I'm the right one, God says, yes, I am. And He says, well, who am I supposed to tell Him it's sending me? Like, by whose authority am I going to do this? I'm nobody. He says, tell Him, tell him the I Am sent you. And when we looked at that Construction of that name, it just means He is. Or, I was, and I am, and I forever will be. But this idea of He is, just He is, well, that's not enough. He is what exactly? I mean, He is like everything? Yes! What about this? Yes! What about that? Yes, He is! He just is! It is in Him... That all being exists. It's in Him that our being exists. It's in Him that our lives have purpose and meaning. He is, I am, and He reveals His name to them, which is Yahweh. Which is an, is incredibly important because much of the plagues are about also revealing the name of Yahweh to Pharaoh. So he goes with Aaron. Let's pick up Exodus chapter one, 7, verse 1. I'm going to, we're going to read this the beginning, and kind of the intro, and, and the first um, plague, And then we're going to look on them kind of as a whole. Um, I think there are three major lessons we can pull out of here. We're going to, I'm going to share those with you, then we're going to be done for today. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out of the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And the Lord said to Moses, "Say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out on your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone." I think there are three primary themes that we. There, there's a lot of stuff we can dive into here, but I think there are three primary themes that we can pull out of here. One is. That Yahweh is in some way battling against idolatry and the gods of Egypt. There is also this struggle between restorative versus punitive justice. What does that look like? And the third is that God, who is the bread of life, is very different from idols, which are perpetual emptiness. Well, I want to somewhat unpack those, but before we do that, I want us to look at the plagues themselves. I shared some of this on the first week that we met, but some of it is um, a little different. There are 10 plagues, or 10 acts of decreation. And in these 10 acts of decreation, there are three groups of three, and then there's one big granddaddy plague at the end. The three groups of three plagues, the nine plagues, are going to be um they're going to happen pretty quickly they're going to be grouped together and you're going to there's some really common themes throughout those three and then the last plague what we find is that they have about three or four chapters just for that one plague it is really in depth it is a really big deal plague number one begins with blood in the river and it ends with death in the city of egypt all of this pointing back to the very thing that they are being had been oppressed with, which is the destruction of all of these children that are just thrown into the river. That is the theme we're going to find throughout this. God's saying, this thing you have done is evil. <laughs> this thing that you have done is horrible. And so I'm going to rise up, raise up a people that are going to do something different. If we look at the word plague... It, It actually can be translated in a number of ways. It can be translated to hit or to strike. It can be translated to touch or touch intensely. I would say these are some intense touches. It can also be interpreted as signs and wonders. We tend to translate them as sickness or disease, a pandemic, COVID, Something else, smallpox. Those are the things that we, we think of as plagues, but literally it just means to strike. There's a war happening here. And during the plagues, what we'll find is seven times throughout these plagues an announcement will be made so that you will know that I am Yahweh. Seven times through these plagues that's going to be said to Pharaoh because he is trying to let Pharaoh know who is doing this, that he is the God of gods, he is the king of kings, He is the Lord of Lords. He is Pharaoh. Or He is God. We're also going to see that Yahweh is concerned with humanity knowing Him and experiencing the eternal life that we were created to live. Three groups of three. First group of three is blood, frogs, and gnats, or lice, depending on your translation. And interestingly, in each of these three groups of three, they happen exactly the same way. The first one, first of the group of three happens in the morning, and he is told to go meet Pharaoh by the waters or by the river Nile, and he says, so that you will know I am Yahweh. The second one, frogs, um, Moses is supposed to go into Pharaoh's house. The second, in each of the group of three, is him then going into the house. And then the third, there is no warning whatsoever, like gnat's and lies. there's no warning second group of three flies he says in the morning you are to meet pharaoh by the waters so that you will and and you are to say to him you will know that i am yahweh um, then disease or this is where he separates the herds um, and moses is told to go into his house and tell him that and then without any warning boils happen the third group of three we have hail And he says, go down in the morning and meet Pharaoh by the waters so that you will know that I am Yahweh. And then he goes to his house, and we have the plague of locusts. And then there's no warning again, and there are three days of darkness. There's a pattern here. First you go down to meet him at the river, and then you go meet him at his house, and then I'm going to do something with no warning whatsoever. Go back to that first group of three. On the slides. Each of these things will find messes with the created order. It messes with the way the world works, and it demonstrates that God will sometimes work through a nation like Israel, bringing restorative justice through the promised land, and sometimes God will work through creation itself, like Sodom and Gomorrah or blood in the river Nile. Or frogs, which represent both land and sea animals, removing the barrier between land and sea, which creation and Genesis 1 had separated. Gnats and lice, the same thing. Flies, disease, boils, and they go on. Something else I shared with you, um, the first week we talked about this was that there is a battle happening here between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. So jump ahead to that slide that says blood. So this is not just... Well, that's an interesting way to really strike at Egypt to do that. The River Nile was absolutely their economy. It was the reason that people would go to Egypt in the middle of a drought. It was how Egypt developed so much of the land and had gathered so much wealth under Joseph because they had the river there to provide crops and to provide water. And um, people came, and the story of Joseph tells us that first they came and they spent all their money, then they gave all their things, then they gave their land, and then they gave themselves to Egypt. And through that famine, Egypt grew into this great empire and then this Pharaoh forgot who Joseph was and all that this, these people had done for them. And this is where they find themselves. But what we find when we look at the story of blood is we find that he's fighting and demonstrating to Pharaoh, your gods they do not do anything for you that they think they do. These are three, the three gods that turning the Nile to blood. Would have demonstrated his power over them. Num was the guardian of the river source. Happy was the god of annual flooding of the Nile, and the lord of the fish, Osiris, had the Nile as his bloodstream. Next one Frogs. Hecht was the Egyptian goddess of fertility, water, renewal. Every demonstration, or drawing, or painting, or Um, Any graphic representation of the goddess Hecht had the head of a frog. Next one. Nats or lice. Geb was the Egyptian god of the earth, was over the dust of the earth, and yet when Moses struck the dust of the earth, it turned to gnats or lice and covered all of Egypt. Next. Flies. Kepri was the Egyptian god of creation, movement of the sun, and rebirth. And every representation of Kepri had the head of a fly. Next one. Disease. Hathor was the Egyptian goddess of love and protection depicted with the head of a cow. This is where only Egypt's herds grew sick, but none of, of the Hebrews' herds grew sick. And he was separating their herds. Boils. Isis is the Egyptian goddess of health. And Imhotep was the Egyptian god of healing, yet they could not heal the people. Hail, Newt, was the Egyptian goddess of the sky. Shu, Newt's father, was the Egyptian god of calm over the wind and the air, and yet their gods could not counter what Yahweh was doing. Locusts, Nepur and Nepri, Egyptian god and goddess of grain, Set, the Egyptian god of storms and disorder, were powerless against Yahweh. And then darkness, Ra, the primary god of Egypt, the sun god. All of Egypt was dark for three days. And interestingly, it says that none of the Egyptians could see in this time of darkness, but all of the Hebrews could still see. It was a pretty, pretty incredible part of the story. This is following a process that we often see throughout the story, whether we're talking about the flood or we're talking about Exodus, is that God will at times create, God will at times decreate, and then God will recreate. Is that not a story of life as well? There are times in my life where I just feel like things are going well and we're building, we're getting healthy, we're doing good things, and then there are times where everything seems to fall apart. And we think, oh, wow, this is awful. Life is terrible. Where is God? I just feel abandoned. And then all of a sudden, we realize we, we survived. And then we begin to rebuild. God is also a God of recreation. And God, as He has recreated the earth, He decreated during the flood and then He recreated humanity again. We have the story of the Exodus where now He is using the different things that Egypt trusts, the different things that Egypt believes that they have the power over to demonstrate, I am Yahweh and there is none that stand before Me. He's fighting the very battle of letting them know your idols are not real. (laughs) They are not capable of defending you. The things that are driving you, which for Pharaoh are fear and greed and the need to elevate self over everyone else, the things that are driving you will leave you empty and wanting. They will not fill the hole that is within you. And he shows it to them nine different times. Three groups of three, first at the river, then at his house, and then out of nowhere. And yet Pharaoh continued to say, no, I refuse to let them go. So what are the three lessons I think we can learn? We could, we could spend the next several months just talking about these plagues and all the things that are happening and this interesting story of the staffs and the snakes and all of that. There's a lot of things we can talk about here. But the three things that, that I want to share with you is this. One is that God always hears the cry of the oppressed. The first plague demonstrates to us this incredible moment in which God is demonstrating... I hear the cry of the blood in the river. It harkens back to Genesis. If you remember what happens with Cain and Abel, what, what does God say when He's talking to Cain after Abel is killed? I heard what? His blood crying out to me. God is essentially saying here, I hear the blood of these children crying out to me. He comes to the aid of the oppressed. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. The interesting problem that we have with believing that is, it seems here like he is, he is incredibly focused on overcoming what's going on with his oppressed group of people, but there are places we look at even in our modern history and think, why did God not act then the way he did here? Why did Auschwitz happen? Why did God not step in in Auschwitz? And there seems to be this place, and there there seems to be this character of God who says, "I, I I am going to be patient with you. But there is a moment that He steps in and He says, I'm done. And that moment is coming again. The last moment in which God says, I'm done, is coming when He returns. And He says, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Because He looks over the earth time and time again, and He sees how terrible the creation has become. And he says, this is not what I created this for. A very great part of us partnering with God, if we're going to follow Him, is hearing the same things that God hears. God hears the cry of the oppressed. If we are going to follow Jesus, we have to hear the cry of the oppressed. Which is a bit complicated when we all feel so oppressed all the time. Go to Starbucks, they're giving away free cups. They run out just as I get to the counter, God, why am I being oppressed? I mean, we can be oppressed over so many things. I didn't get the job I tried for. Why am I being oppressed? Someone got pa- passed over me for a promotion, but I really wanted that promotion and I prayed for that promotion and I've been going to church every Sunday and I've been reading my Bible every day and I prayed and I prayed and I even fasted and I still didn't get it. Why am I being oppressed? We are a people who likes to talk about our oppression rather than to say, look how great we have it. I didn't get the promotion, but you've got a job. I'm not able to buy the next thing. Well, you don't need the next thing. Look at all you have. One of the things we've been talking about on Wednesday nights is just the need for Shalom and that moment in which we just realize life is really good no matter what's going on in your life there can be moments just windows just slivers of time in which you say but life is still really good god is still really good and we are still really good god always hears the cry of the the oppressed his justice is restorative not punitive Also, Yahweh and Yahweh alone can create, decreate, and recreate. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the God of gods. There is none that can stand with him. And what he's trying to demonstrate to us today and to them at that time is there is a way, there are, there are, are things we can worship that lead us to the very place where Pharaoh ended up. They can lead you to places of great power. They can lead you to places where somebody pats you on the back and says, you are such a success. They will lead you to a place where you look around and you have more than anyone else has around you. But what we find over and over and over again is as we seek those things, as we get them, they don't actually fill this big hole that resides within us that we're trying to fill. We try to fill that with so many things. Sometimes we try to fill that with people and the the reality is sometimes our relationships are in a mess because we aren't whole alone and we expect that the person that we're with is somehow going to fill this hole within us. And so we just consume and we just consume and we keep consuming and yet we never feel whole and healthy and good anymore. And so we go have a bunch of kids, and we think, well, maybe the kids will fill this hole within me. And then we end up just consuming them too. And we go, gosh, why, are, why is my marriage so bad? Why, why are my relationship with my children so bad? Because we approach them not as healthy whole people. We approach them and we worshiped what they would be for us, and we consumed them. Have you ever just saved up for something and you just knew it was going to be the thing and you were excited about it? And then you get the thing and it's the thing for like a week or two and then two weeks later you're like, yeah, I don't really care about that thing anymore. Have you ever had those things? Remember back in the, I don't know, maybe ten years ago, and some of you don't, I'm I'm like a, a, you know, I just love technology. And a new phone would come out. You Remember when the new phones would come out and we would line up? I didn't, but there would be lines of people around the building to get the new phone. And we'd be so excited about it because it was going to make our life so much better. And now, instead of three pixels, it's three and a half pixels in the camera. And my phone calls are going to be better and my text messages are going to be better and when I surf it's going to be better. It's just going to be better. And, and you, you go and you get the new phone and you're like, oh wow. It works just like my last phone. But it looks cool and everybody knows I've got one but really the net change effect within your life that you had hoped was going to make your life better was now you're just out about $1,000. <laughs> life has not actually changed. There's so many things we do that with. There's so many idols we can have. Sometimes it's our hobbies, and we love hobbies. I think God wants us to have hobbies. There are things I enjoy doing with my time. There's a part of God that He wants you to serve Him, and He wants you to go out and tell people about Him. But there's also a part of God that just wants you to enjoy life. Find the things that you enjoy doing and do those things. And yet sometimes we put such a value on those things above everything else that they become the thing we worship. We miss out on all the other things that God says are good, like serving one another. like right? Self-denial and self-sacrifice on behalf of others. The idea that we is something that should be worked on way more than just me. There's all kinds of idols that we do that. Sometimes we pass on those to others, and, and we unwittingly pass on to our children this need to be successful. And we felt it. And we want to go out. And many times you have this drive, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people have this drive to be more successful than their parents. To feel valuable. To feel like I did a good thing and and now I need to to do better than they did. And we pass that along and now this measure of success becomes this idol that you never achieve. And then once you do, there's always the next level. And the problem with worshiping idols is they promise you the world, but they leave you perpetually empty. You put hope in them and you dream about them and you work towards them and then you realize maybe you even get there and you're like, this is just not what I thought it was going to be. Pharaoh is the supreme ruler. He's the wealthiest person in the nation. His Word makes things happen for anyone who lives within His borders. His art depicting Him. I mean, if there was someone who was successful, someone who has the world by the tail, someone who has kind of gotten it all, it's Him. And yet the story begins with Him cowering in fear of a people that just wanted to live their life. Because idols promise you everything and perpetually leave you empty. False idols will cost you everything and offer you nothing. This is in direct opposition to what God consistently wants to say to you and to me. John chapter six verse thirty-five. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am perpetually filling you up." You think, yeah, but I mean, we're we're still going to get hungry. I mean, we still have to eat. But yet, when we we follow in the path of Jesus, we'll never have to wonder if we can eat. Like. You lose your job, life's falling apart. I don't know where my next meal's from. No problem. We got you. We're your family. You're not going to go without. You may not be, we may not set you up at Ruth's Chris, but you're going to have food to eat because you're our people and we're your people. We are a family. When we pursue God, He fills us up. He's already said in John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone, this is where he goes to the well and he gets water, and she draws water for him, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is The difference between being filled with God and Trying to do just enough to get God to try to give us all the other things we really want. This is one of the problems of of kind of modern Christianity. There is a difference in saying, God, I I want you, and saying I want like a supernatural being to, to take care of all the things that I want. I don't want to get sick, and I want to make sure I get the promotion, and I want to make sure that you know, I have a good life. There's a difference when we approach God from that perspective versus, God, I just, I just I want this life you're talking about. I want this I, I want to live knowing you and loving you, and then knowing and loving the people I come in contact with every day. I this is how I want to live my life. It's generally in the times in which we begin to lose things that we begin to recognize what is most important to us. If your house starts burning down, and your family's inside, you don't care about having the next phone. You care about having your family. Whenever you're wondering where the next meal's coming from, you don't really care about what's the new movie coming out. All you care about is, how are we going to make sure everybody's fed? It tends to be in the hard things of life in which we begin to put away the idols and say, okay, what is most important here? God is saying, you will never not be filled if you truly embrace what I'm trying to show you. Pharaoh is not going to get this message. And God is going to go on in these next few chapters and He's going to say, I'm going to use you to redeem the whole world. And I'm going to bring the whole world back to what I created them for. And we know that that's going to involve Jesus for them, this is the beginning of the process that God is working to redeem the world through this group of people and their God Yahweh that seven times throughout the plagues Moses would declare to Pharaoh or God would say, so that you would know the name Yahweh. He wants the world to know that this is good where He's leading us is good. He also wants to know, wants us to know that life is good and that God is good that you are good, and that we are good. The story of Exodus is a pretty beautiful story. This is a really ugly part of it. But this is the place where God is demonstrating, I am the only one who has the power over life and death and creation. And I am the only one who will lead you to a place of freedom away from the oppression if you will follow me. I'm the only one that if you follow, that you will not be perpetually empty, but you will be perpetually full. I would just leave us with this. May we know that, Yahweh. May that be our story, our testimony. May that be our God. Father. I-